Our sermon passage this week continues on in the Gospel of John. We're picking up in the same story we were in last week, in John chapter 9. Last week we looked at the first seven verses. We're continuing on after what happened in those first seven verses, this remarkable healing of a man who had been born from birth. So I invite you to turn to John 9. This is a longer passage, but I want us to get the feel of the entire thing. Back and forth, what's going on here? So turn to the end of for you, Lord, in John chapter 9, verses 8 through 41. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit in bed? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am a man. How long were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to the ceiling and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where's the man? He asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can the sinner perform such signs in the Bible? Then he turned again to, they turned again to the blind man, What have you to say about him? It was your eyes on him. The man replied, He's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind, and had received his sight until they sent the man's parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say is born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know that he's your son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but he, how he can see now, and who opened his eyes, we don't know, that's him. He's of age, he'll speak for himself. The parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that's why the parents said he's of age, that's him. A second time, the son of man who had been blind. Before God, I tell him the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear him? You want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him, and they said, You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, he listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard opening the eyes of a man that were blind, but this man went up from God and could do nothing. To this they replied, You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell him so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked why. 
are you blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, you're guilty of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in this dramatic scene, the aftermath of the grace in this man's life, the trauma of rejection, and you're welcome, that we can see a picture of who you are. So I pray in these moments as we reflect on this verse, or this passage, these verses, that you would give us insight, that you would illumine our hearts and open them to the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus that our hearts might love him more and change us and make us more like him. I pray this in his name. Amen. Have you ever been really excited about some news, maybe like job promotion or something along those lines? Really excited about some news, and you want to share it with the people who are around you. You want to share it with your family, your friends, or whoever. You show up, and you're very excited, and you're in the vulnerability of your joy, because joy is a very vulnerable place to be. And instead of celebrating with you, there's either a response to or a response of either jealousy or anger or a fight back, and maybe that's not as good. It's almost like show and tell in school. You bring the thing you love the most, and then the kids show, and that's not cool. I don't know what What we have in this passage is that dynamic of excitement and joy, and you share your joy, the vulnerability of your joy, and a little, what? That time to do it. That time to do it. If you were here last week and you listened to the sermon, we looked at the same passage, the first seven verses, and we focused on the, the start of this scene. Uh, we, Jesus and his disciples encountered this man who's been born blind. And if you remember, the disciples asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They want to assign blame. They're trying to do the equation of how suffering works out in this world and make sense of it. If you remember, we talked about how uh, Jesus doesn't respond to our suffering that way. And that people are not problems to be solved. People are humans made in the image and likeness of God we love. Well, this week, what I want to do is focus on the aftermath of this evil. Because I think sometimes we can tell the story, the stories of Jesus' life that we had in the Gospels, and they can feel like these little vignettes. Jesus heals somebody, and everybody celebrates and goes home and lives happily ever after. At least that's the way I think about it. But here we actually have a detailed walkthrough of the immediate aftermath of the season. What it means for this man who was healed, what it means for this family in this community. And here's the surprising thing it's not great. We just read it, it's not great. In fact, it's a little bit dramatic. This man has been given sight for the first time in his life. Imagine the scene, he's never seen anything before. And he comes home to his community, and rather than them showing up the band and throwing the biggest party that the blocks ever had, what did they do? They turned their back on him. They scoffed at him. And he loses his community in this passage. He loses his family. He loses his home. He loses his church. But in this passage, he finds he's not alone because he finds a new home. Which we'll talk about a little bit. So why? Why did this man's community, why did they celebrate? Why did they have room for his joy? Why was his joy such a threat to them? Our text tells us they can't see the joy of someone to celebrate with them because they were wrapped up in fear. In fear. 
They're wrapped in darkness. They're trapped in darkness and confusion. So look at me. Verse 8. Picks up right after Israel gave this time. You may remember Jesus had filled them in a very, very strange way. He had applied mud as a kind of salve to his eyes and told him to go wash in a pool. And so Jesus did the actions, told him to go wash in the pool, so when the man regained his sight, Jesus wasn't actually there. So the guy opens his eyes and can see for the first time. He wanders home. He returns home to his side. And I can only imagine. He must have been in shock. Maybe he's weeping with joy. I don't know. But either way, he returns home. But his neighbors seem to not even recognize him. Look at verse 8. They say, Isn't this the same man who used to sit in bed? Some claim that he was. Others said, No, no, he only looks like him. Guys, the man is seen right there. And they're not talking to him, they're talking about him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. He's saying, It's me, look at me. Look at me. Now I realize the man had never seen any of their faces, but he knows the voices. He can finally match a face to a voice. And these people who have been able to see him his whole life, they're staring at him. And this is a community, this wasn't a highly mobile culture. You kind of lived where you were born. You didn't move around at So these are people that would have seen this man pretty much every day for his entire life. They're like, is this even him? I think there may be a sense that these folks have been in this guy off. It says that he was a beggar. It says that he was a beggar. And blind at that. So not only was he estranged because they were uncomfortable maybe around him as a beggar, he was blind. And his disability that it was kind of like a wall that stood between him and his community. It had probably been a long time since anybody had looked at him on purpose in the face. Or so much as talked to him. Maybe they had tossed him a coin or a piece of bread or something. But either way, I think that they had written him off, in a sense. You know, I used to live in downtown Orlando, and there's a lake in the middle of downtown. A beautiful lake, Lake Eola. I loved it. I went there every day. I'd run there, I'd work there. If I had the internet, just kind of studying and writing and everything. And um, there's a decent sized homeless population in Orlando. And I'd go down there every day, and I made it. Somebody told me at one point um, uh, the, the dignity that comes with looking somebody in the face. And so I started being very purposeful. Okay, I'm going to carve out time. I'm not going to make myself incredibly busy. When I'm down there, I'm going to interact with who's down there. I'm going to have a conversation. And I can't tell you how many times I would look at a person who was homeless in the face, and they would almost brace for me to verbally abuse them. There was a discomfort. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I was having a conversation with someone who was living in the park there, and I'd have somebody else who wasn't, who was maybe just running around, would accost me for even talking to them. Why? That they, would, they would get on me <laughs> for interacting with this, this person. And so I, I can't help but think of that when I look at this passage. This man who's in the community, he's lived in his whole life, he's barely recognized when he comes home with his sight. He wasn't a stranger. But in a sense, he was. They didn't look at him. They didn't look at him a long time. 
But either way, here in this amazement, we're trying to share his joy he's met with his community and a refusal to celebrate with him. Instead, they seem to be blind themselves, spiritually in a sense. They seem to be blind to what has just happened instead of celebrating and then interrogating him. And so he recounts to them the story of what just happened. And all men can say at this point, notice, he doesn't launch into this like theological lecture about the nature of God and and all these things, all the man can say is, the man that called Jesus made some blood and he put it on my eyes. He told me to go to the pool and wash and I went and washed and now I can see. That's all he can say. That's all he can testify to. This community seems flabbergasted. So what do they do next? It says that they go and get the Pharisees. They run and they get their pastors. Now I know the text says Pharisees and we tend to think of Pharisees as these like menacing guys that just follow Jesus around and but they were the religious leaders. They were the pastors. They were the leaders of the synagogues, which were the local churches. People didn't go to the temple every day. People went to their local synagogues. They ran the show in the synagogues. And so his neighbors were taking him to the pastors, who, let me remind you, this man had probably lived in the same exact community. His family probably went to the same exact synagogue their entire life. These were his pastors, or at least they should have been. But here again, when he shows up, he's talked about before he's talked to. And this time, his pastors don't just face, just give him questions about what's going on. They, they have hostility toward him. Now let me remind you, because I think we can get lost on how ridiculous this scene is. This man has just had his sight restored to him. He's never seen a thing before. And he shows up, and he's looking around, he's looking people in the eyes, and he's saying, celebrate with me, I can see. I know it was here, and I put it in my eyes, and I washed it off, but I can see, that's celebrate with me. But instead of celebrating, even one moment, the religious leaders are wanting to him to give them an account of their problems with Jesus. He tries to come home to celebrate, but instead he finds himself in a courtroom, Facing His pastors are just like his neighbor, seemingly blind to what has happened right in them, right in front of their faces. So they question the man. And the center of the dispute is one that we've seen in the Gospel of John before. They're angry because Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath. And we talked about that a number of months ago because it's something that repeats. It's kind of the centerpiece of the Pharisees' anger, at least initially, at Jesus. Now, God had set apart one day in seven as a day of rest and worship. And it was a day that was supposed to be meticulously kept. And it wasn't just for you. It wasn't just like God saying, you work really hard. You need a day off. It was a day of justice. If you were a warrior, if you were a master, you could work, even your animals, every day of the week. The Sabbath stood as this gift to the people of God to say, you are not your jobs, you are not what you do, you are not defined by how much you produce, you're not just made to flow away, but your work is meant to lead to rest and reflection and joy, celebration together. And what the Pharisees had done, as they had taken this gift, the Sabbath, and they had turned it into a, a, an idol. They made the rules around it. So they, they said, God said we should rest, 
And so I'm only going to travel a quarter of a mile. If you go over a quarter of a mile, evil. God said we should rest. And so you shouldn't even light a fire in your house to keep it warm on the Sabbath. And so the night before the Sabbath becomes meticulous. Get the food all ready today, or can't eat tomorrow. And all these things became this big burden. The gift turned into a burden. And I would, they worshiped. They would make up their own rules and then have themselves in the back for following their own rules. And that's what it's saying in verse 16. That's what they're mad at. Not that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath that God had set up, but that he's breaking their rules. And see how important it was. They're so wrapped up in their own mind of what they their religious rules should do that should be followed that a man is healed of blindness and they're mad that it happened outside of the parameters of what they thought. It's preposterous. And we're supposed to read it and say, this, this is preposterous. And so in verse 16, when they say that Jesus is, quote, not from God, when they say that he's, quote, a sinner, it's because he doesn't follow their rules. This is God in the flesh, directly in front of them. They want to sit and judge over him because he doesn't play by their rules. That's the crux of the issue. So the man is discussing this with his pastors. And it doesn't satisfy what he says doesn't satisfy them. So they must think he's at least not in his right mind. And so what do they do? They go to call his parents. They bring his parents in verse 19. They ask him, is this your son, the one that's been born blind? How can he now see? In their question, they're almost accusing the parents of lying that they've been born blind. Notice, the one that you said has been born blind. Guys, our, our modern world is not the first place where the poor and suffering are blamed for things outside their control. In the answer to these questions, the parents distance themselves from them. Notice that. Yes, to admit that he's their son. Let's say he's their son. And we know he's the one, but that's all it went up to. That's, that's all of it. Their son can see. And they're like, yeah, he's the one, one. Verse 22 tells us why. And I think this tells us why this whole thing is happening in the first place. I think it's the key in the entire passage. Which it says, his parents said this because they were afraid. Because they were afraid. Of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Put out of the synagogue. Now let me, this is huge. This is huge. In our world, we have our different segments of life. You might have your church life, you have your work life, you have your social life. We have all these different kind of things that we float in and out of, and sometimes they don't merge at all. They don't come out. But at this time, not a highly mobile culture. You grew up in one community, you went to one church your whole life. And if you got kicked out of the synagogue, you suddenly weren't welcome in the market anymore. You were kicked out of the synagogue, you suddenly lost your entire social network. You lost everything. So his parents are afraid. They stand to lose everything, not because they've done anything wrong, mind you. They stand to lose everything because their son is evil. Their fear closes them off. Their fear builds a wall between them and their son. 
That same fear had estranged this man from his, from his community. They're so trapped in their fear of religious authorities that they can't immediately join with this man to denounce it. Now, emotionally, for a moment, enter into what that must have felt like to this man. I've already said it, and he comes back and he can see. And people he's talked to, maybe people he grew up with, his buddies from when they were kids. He's talking to them, and he can see them for the first time. Is it even here? So the line's been drawn. We see the drama playing out here. The Pharisees and the religious leaders as a whole have been frustrated in their attempts to stifle Jesus, which we've already seen in the Gospel of John some. And since Jesus keeps on leading them, they now turn to punishing those who have come to believe in Jesus. So they can't get to Jesus. He keeps getting out of the grass. So they go after people who have been healed of Jesus. They go after the followers of Jesus. And they turn to punish those who come to believe in him. The man's parents are in fear of this, and fear of the pastors coming following So the pastors, they're not satisfied with what Jesus said. So they call the man back before him. Verse 24. And they say, Give glory to God by telling the truth. Which is a great irony here. They tell the man they want the truth. I can't help but think of Jack and a few good men. They can't handle the truth. But they say they want the truth. But what else did he say? Guys, what else did he say? He's a blind man who's been given his sight. But they're so blinded by their own hatred of Jesus and their own fear of what his grace means for them that they can't see the ridiculousness of the situation. And now the man shows a little spunk, a little more confidence in his answer. And I'm sure he's frustrated with the farce of him interrogating him. And that's what he says in verse 25. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and I'll see. And then verse 27, <laughs> he answered, I've already told you, you didn't listen. You want to hear it again? You want to become his disciples too? The man just wants to celebrate. And he turns to his community, to his neighbors, to his family, to his pastors, and wants to celebrate with them that they will not rejoice with him in his joy, and their inability to rejoice with him reveals a spiritual blindness that the light of Jesus coming into the world is revealed. Now, that idea of light coming into this world is very common and common in the Gospel of John. And for some people who aren't wrapped up in their own power or whatever, the light of Jesus is a beacon home. It's a light that shines in the darkness and people flee to it because this is freedom. I can get out of this darkness. But to other people, the light of Jesus is a threat because it reveals. For some, it looks like the light of Jesus even blinds them like steering into the sun. So the light of Jesus has come in and it's revealed a spiritual blindness in the hearts of the religious leaders of the community here. And in this final interaction in this passage with this pastor's they end up, as it says, hurling insults at him. He's before his pastors. And they're hurling Insults at him. In verse 34 reveals a terrible mindset. They said, You were speaking sin at birth. In the very beginning of John chapter 9, you might remember, Jesus and the disciples see that the man's born blind, and the disciples ask the question, Who sinned? This man or his parents? And this happened to him. Here are the Pharisees, the religious leaders, this man's pastors. They say, Your blindness plainly means that you're. You're warped. You're steeped in sin. 
disturbed. They're disgusted. They reveal hearts filled with hatred. And they threw him out. But friends, that didn't mean they just tossed him out of his presence. To throw him out and then to excommunicate him entirely. So this man just had the most remarkable thing that he could even imagine happened to him in the aftermath of him receiving this incredible grace is total rejection by everybody he knows. Total rejection by everybody he knows. And our passage says this in there. Verse 35, Jesus comes to the man. In fact, I love how Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, Jesus heard of this rejection, and Jesus' whole purpose was to find him in that rejection. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now that sounds a little strange, Son of Man. Don't go around and call himself Son of Man. Um, but it was kind of a title. It was one that Jesus used about himself more than any other. It's rooted in the Old Testament, and it's used in the sense of kind of like a representative figure, a future king, in a sense. So, Daniel chapter 7 is the key passage for Son of Man. And what we see is God giving the Son of Man, a future king, authority to judge and to rule, a future king that will establish a kingdom that will never end. And so when Jesus says this question, He's saying this, you've experienced an incredible thing and given sight, you've experienced incredible pain and being rejected by your family and community, but I, who have bigger authority than your pastors who just mistreated you, that have bigger authority than your family that just rejected you, and your community, me, the king of God's kingdom, I will give you a place. I will give you a home with me that they can't take. As we read in our insurance card, an inheritance that cannot spoil or fade. Jesus is saying, I will rejoice with you because my kingdom is a place of rejoicing. Then Jesus says something interesting to close out the passage. We see in verse 40 that some of the Pharisees had followed him, and apparently they didn't want to be bothered by the man's presence, but they didn't want to stop him. So they kicked him out of his community and followed him. They still want to harass him. Verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I've come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, if you know the gospel of John, you may be thinking, Wait, I know John 3 16. That was just a couple of chapters ago. It said that Jesus didn't come to command, he come to bring salvation. Is Jesus contradicting himself? No. This is what Jesus is saying here. He has shined into this world of darkness, yet those in love of the ways of this world of darkness. His light is on the effect. In response to this light, they have blinded themselves. They have closed their eyes to the invitation that God has placed before them. They have closed their ears to His words. And that's where our passage ends. Now, friends, we don't hear this man again. We can keep reading through the Gospel of John. He doesn't pop back up. But I think there's good reason to believe, because he had lost his entire community here, that this man became a follower of Jesus. Who followed along with the disciples. Because the disciples, the, the numbers were dead and flowed. It wasn't just 12. It was this, this growing number. He had found a home with Jesus. And not just a home with Jesus, he had found brothers and sisters that weren't blood related. 
but now had a greater bond. They had been recipients of God's grace. They didn't need to measure up for each other. In fact, it's kind of neat, the church tradition from the earliest centuries gives this man a name. And it's a cool name. If you're looking for a name as a kid, or for maybe a dog, Celadonius. Isn't that great? Celadonius. You can call him Celadonius. His name is Celadonius. And it tells us what he did the rest of his life. Celadonius, this man who had just been rejected, tossed out, lost his community, became a church planter. And he left Jerusalem. He planted a church in what was then Gaul, what's now modern France. That church is still there. In other words, this man who has lost his community when he found God's grace used the rest of his life to create communities, to create a community that's not defined by fear or suspicion or power plays. But he spent his life creating a community surrounding the grace and promises of Jesus that was defined by God. In other words, the pain that Celadonius experienced and his rejection by others, in a sense, became his calling. To make a home for those who have experienced the grace of Jesus too. To be a community of people who have found each other in Jesus. Now I'm going to point out a couple of thoughts for us. What we can do with this passage. The first one is this. It's the idea of our posture in this world. Now most of us aren't going to be dragged before our entire community to give the answer to those receiving the grace of Jesus. It's not going to happen. We're not going to be threatened to be thrown out of our churches or anything like that. We're not going to experience this. But I want you to notice Celadonius' posture in this passage. He doesn't walk in uh, and feel the need to be the smartest man in the room. He doesn't try to run up his pastors. He's a little snarky, and that's funny. But I think our application point is this, and our thoughts about how we interact with the world around us. Jesus doesn't need this. God doesn't need a defender. He doesn't need us to be his champions. Jesus calls us to be witnesses. He didn't call the man in this passage, Celebrities, does not come up short and tell them what Jesus has done for him. Now notice, he doesn't he can't use the flower in the world. He doesn't know it. He keeps saying, all I know is I was born, and now I can see. That's all he can say. And that was enough. Because God had not called him to be a defender. God had called him to be a witness. That's all we do is witness to the grace that we receive. Not to be the smartest person in the room. Not to be a person that chases down people that don't agree with them. To chase them, you know, to, to argue them into the kingdom of God or something. A witness. In this world, defenders think they're heroic. A defender defines himself against someone else. And there are plenty of Christians that have ever that description. But a witness doesn't define himself so that way. A witness doesn't pretend to know everything. A witness testifies. In this passage, I think Celadonius embodies that. He doesn't try to speak beyond his understanding. He speaks of what he knows. He doesn't try to warn out people asking him questions, even when those questions are ridiculous. He's not a defender. He's not an expert. He's a witness. The same thing for us. I'm not saying turn off your mind, stop exploring, stop learning scripture or anything like that. But God doesn't call us, call us to be somebody who has all the capabilities worked out, so 
questions asked to us, we can speak that to the answer. No, we testify to the grace that we receive. That's far more powerful than the argument that we give. God's called us to be witnesses. Or to put it another way, we are never more than beggars who are trying to tell other beggars where we have found bread. That's our posture to this world. We are beggars who have found bread that does not run out. And we are running out to tell the rest of the beggars that are starving where we found them. They never know who Here's a second thought. Often the place of our pain, the wounds that we have from our experience, or even rejection, is the place of our calling. Broken hearts become open hearts. Eyes that are open that to see the places where we can love others well. Now that's not to say, as I mentioned in last week's sermon, that we become people who thank God for the terrible things we've been through. No, we can still say bad things are bad. But on the other side, as we look at our experience, as we look at the ways that God has sustained us in His grace, we may find the exact places where we can be channels of God's grace to others. Our experience of pain can become our call. That's what happened in Celadonius here. He faced profound rejection, lost his entire community, he found a home with Jesus. And what did he say? I'm going to carve out a place in my life to make room for people. He planted a church. And finally, fear can do a lot of things. And one of those things that fear does is it can blind us to things that are right for our People in this passage who rejected the man were blinded by their fear. Specifically says his parents were. We're going to look at a passage next week that talks about how the religious leaders were actually fearful as well. And that was a big part of their rejection of Jesus. They were blinded by fear. And so when this man walks in, the most remarkable thing that any of them had ever seen that happened to him, and they cannot see it. All I can see is the fear. Let's be aware of the reality of fear in this world and what we can do with our hearts. I'm not talking about faith over fear, COVIDness. I'm not talking about that ridiculous motto. There's a difference between fear and seeing the world as it is and walking in wisdom. But I'm saying, how many of our decisions in life are defined by fear? How many of our decisions about politics? How many of our decisions about uh, how, where we put our money are defined by fear as true? I think this passage tells us to beware of the reality of fear and how it can build a wall between us and others, how it can blind us to see what's happening before our eyes. So friends, let's open the eyes of our hearts to the light of Jesus, which can dispel that fear and replace it with perfect Let's create places in our 